Well, today we have satellites and technology with which we can look down upon the Earth. We can use lasers from space to measure the heights of mountains, to measure the movements of continents and shorelines. We can craft intricate and accurate maps for globes that we see adorning classrooms and bookshelves, much like the globe I have in front of you, both on the screen and, and uh, in front of the pulpit here. And that's to say nothing of the th globes that we can pull up on our phones and computers as we zoom in and, and take a look at all the features that are around us. Now, it may surprise you that globes have been around for over 2,000 years. This is not something that's new. Even without the use of technology, Greek thinkers were able to utilize mathematics, experiments, and, and just simple observation to figure out the shape of our world. And they weren't just figuring out, okay, what do shorelines look like as we are sailing so that we can draw them accurately for maps. They were able to tell that the world is not flat, but it is in fact round. It's a sphere. And they began to take those maps and transpose them onto globes as early as the third century BC. Now I'm sure those globes were not nearly as accurate as ours are today, right? There were some mistakes, but it's incredible to think that they were able to come up with that without having a view that's overall. They were able to just look out and use math and use experimentation to figure out how it would look from above. Now, those globes, unfortunately, didn't survive history. The oldest one we have today actually comes from Christopher Columbus's time. Now, you might remember, kids, that in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And I remember that from Bugs Bunny. That's where I learned that one from. Folks in Europe at the time were trading with people in India, but you might remember that they had to travel by ship all the way down south around the continent of Africa and then back up to get to India. And they were hoping to find a shorter route. And Columbus was determined to be the first to find that path, to be able to find that route to India. And he decided the way he's going to do that is to actually go the opposite way around the globe. And so he had some calculations in hand for the circumference of the earth. And he was seeking to, to get some funding for his voyage. But unfortunately, he had two problems. The first of those problems were two large continents that stood in his way that we now remember as the Americas. We fondly remember the Americas because that's exactly where we are, right? And they were right in his way, blocking his path 
to India. The other problem, of course, no one knew about that problem, but the other problem was something that the experts were telling him was a problem, and it was the fact that the world is bigger than Columbus thought. Columbus's math was wrong. And they were warning him that if he goes on this voyage, he's going to run out of supplies before he reaches India. But undaunted by this, he eventually won the funding that he needed and he set sail. Now, of course, you know that story. And you know that he eventually landed in some islands that were called the West Indies. And he encountered natives there that he called the Indians. Why all of this India and Indians? Because he thought he had found the Western path to India, right? And he could not be convinced of his error. And I've read that even to his dying breath, he believed he had found that path to India. He was a brave man. He had made that voyage. But he also had a limited perspective, a limited view of what was in front of him. We all suffer from a limited perspective. And that's something that Jesus is teaching here. It's not that the Pharisees couldn't figure some things out. They have God-given intelligence like everyone else. But they don't have the view from above them. And without that, they can't even always understand what's in front of them. Just like the rest of us. Now, whether it's Columbus or the Pharisees or just us, we, we need God's overlooking perspective on life. And as we're considering that, we are also confessing to ourselves that our thinking is bound by what is just in front of us. Our thinking is bound by this world, by what we can see and, and feel and hear. See, there are two ways of thinking. There, there is a way of thinking that is bound to this world, a kind of thinking that comes from below, as Jesus would say here. And there is a kind of thinking that comes from above. A kind of thinking that it comes from God, the creator of all, the one who sees all and knows all. And we need to understand which of these two ways of thinking we are employing in our lives. And to do that, we're going to ask four questions. The first of this, these questions is this. Do you recognize that the time is short? The second question is, do you recognize the true identity of Christ? The third question is, do you recognize God's testimony? And the fourth is, do you recognize Jesus' mindset? These four questions will help us to determine, are you utilizing worldly thinking or are you utilizing thinking that comes from above? And so let's consider the first of these. Do you recognize the time is short. Do you recognize that the time is short? Verses 21 and 22. Then he said again to them, 
I go away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. You know, it's easy to look around us and assume that this world is just going to continue like it always has. The Pharisees and many of the Jews did have some prophecy that indicated that something would change, but they, they, they didn't believe it. They didn't live like it was true at the very least. And they certainly didn't realize how short their time was. Within the next generation, not only will they have rejected their Messiah, but they will face a siege by the Roman army that will leave Jerusalem and its temple in ruins. Even worse than that is that many of them, through the course of that, will face the Roman sword, and after that comes the judgment. That's not the fulfillment of the judgment. They die, and to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. They are actually going to face judgment before the Lord. They're going to face the God who sent Jesus to them, the Jesus they, that they rejected. And so Jesus, who comes from above, warns them now, while they still have breath, so that they know, so that they can see the warning. In fact, he is repeating a warning because he has already said this back in John 7. And as we've been studying here, this is actually probably just a couple of days before this because this is during the Feast of Tabernacles. And in John chapter 7, verses 33 and 34, he says, For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. That's a warning, but they didn't see it as a warning. And so he repeats it again right here. He says that he is going away and that, again, you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. This warning is more pointed than the first one. If they didn't see the first one as a warning, they should see this as a warning. You will die in your sin, and where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, this is something that they knew to an extent. But we also need to know it as well. Death, the death of our bodies is not the ultimate death in Scripture. The cessation of life, the, the end of our physical life, is not the end because we all have eternal souls. Souls that live on. And the Lord will judge us based on our works. The Lord will judge us based on the fact that we have lied. The Lord will judge us based on the fact that we have stolen 
The Lord will judge us based on the fact that we have become unjustly angry with others. The Lord will judge us based on the fact that we have become malicious or gossips or something else like that. And he tells us in Revelation 21.8 that all such people will have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You say, oh, so that's the cessation of life. No, that is an eternal death. That is a living death. That is defined as death because you are separated from the Lord of life. And for eternity, you will spend uh, time away from God in torment for the sins that you have violated. This is the warning that Jesus gives. You will die in your state of sin. And he repeats this thought in verse 24. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. Giving it a plural there. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You say, wait, why does it say sin here? And then it says sins a few verses later. Because you have a state of sin, which then produces sins. You being of this world are of Adam. And being of Adam, he is a sinner. Guess what sinners give birth to? They give birth to sinners, right? And you say, I don't know if I'm a sinner. Well, do you sin? Yes, then you're a sinner. And when you sin, you are just proving that you are a sinner. The state of sin gives birth to sins. It might look different in other people, but we all have sins. And being a sinner produces those sins. And we have to know that there is a point at which God's grace ends. There is a point at which God's grace ends. People heard the preaching of Noah. And they thought that nothing would change. They made fun of him. They ridiculed him. And they continued to get married and and they continued to eat and drink. They continued to live their lives until that day when Noah and his family entered the ark and God closed the door. God closed the door. And then it began to rain. And it wasn't only until that, or it was only at that point that they realized that they had made a grave error. And though they may have sought salvation from the water, there was no salvation to be had. At some point, Before the Lord, people will realize the error of their ways. But sometimes it's only when it's already too late. It's only after it's too late. But like with Noah, the Jews who don't have that higher perspective are unwilling to change. They look around them and they're just just living life based on what they can see what's in front of them. And what do they do? They choose to mock Jesus. And that's why they say in verse 22, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, I'm going where I'm going, you cannot come. 
they lock on to just that one part of what they don't understand. Uh, they don't understand that he's not from this world. He's from above. And, and they lock onto that and they ignore the warning that he's giving them. And since they frame the question in the way that they do, they, they are expecting a negative response. They don't really think that he's about to go kill himself. But, but they're mocking him. <laughs> what are you going to do? Go kill yourself? Why, why, why would that create a problem? Because they believe that people who went and killed themselves uh, just went straight to hell and that there was never any redemption for them. Re remember that the Jews were a very legalistic people. Uh, they, 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 they believed that as they approached God, they had to prove that they were serious to God. That's, this is what they believed. And so they had to, you know, tithe a certain way. They, they had to fast a certain way. Remember, the Pharisees were even proud about that. They fasted twice a week, unlike other people who didn't. Uh, they, they, they were proud about how, how fastidious they were with their law-keeping they thought that what they did could earn them a place in the heaven. They also thought that there are some sins that a person could do that are so wrong, so heinous, that it would forever bar a person from heaven. And it is true. It is true that suicide is a violation of the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. But we also know something else if we have not a worldly perspective, but a heavenly perspective. That God offers grace in Jesus Christ. God offers grace. He, he, he can take a person who is experiencing those thoughts and give them freedom from those thoughts if they are willing and if that person has believed in Jesus, he can even forgive something like that. He can forgive even something like that. You say, wait a minute, but that person won't have confessed that sin before he died. So how, or she died. So how, how can he forgive that? Does the Lord only forgive us if we confess every single sin to him? Oh, God forbid. Can, can we have we ever confessed every single sin we've done? I don't even know all the sins I've done. I can't remember them all. I have to trust in the grace of Christ to cover all of that. Only those who are in Christ can understand the heavenly perspective on how God can forgive things like that. And he can. He can. Because he gives grace in Jesus. But a lot of folks don't have that perspective. They don't understand that the time is short and that the real problem isn't someone who's struggling with depression or anger over here. Uh, and it's causing them to, to, to have thoughts that they shouldn't have. The, 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 that's a problem. But the problem that we need to worry about is within each one of us. Because the time is short for all of us. For every one of us, and only someone with a heavenly perspective can see that. Only a person with a heavenly perspective can understand the grace that comes in Jesus. And that brings me to the next point. Do you recognize the true identity of Christ? Because we want that heavenly perspective. Let's look at verses 23 through 25. Of course, Jesus doesn't even respond to their silly 
silly question. Oh, is he going to go kill himself? Okay. This is what he was saying to them. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? Now, it is true that those who are in the world, those who are not Christians, those who are not saved, can see a problem in the world. It doesn't take a lot of insight for, for folks to look around and say the world is not going the way it should be going. We can figure that part out. But we can't always figure out what the cause is without that heavenly perspective. And we can't figure out exactly what's going wrong without that heavenly perspective. That's why we need God's word over everything. And by the way, that's why the God's word is up here over the world. Because that's exactly how it should be. If you kids want something to draw right now, as if you're taking notes, that would be something to draw. God's word over the world, right? Because that is what we should be holding to. And those who are in the world, they, they may have trouble, even though they can see that there's a problem in the world, that, the, that God may even uh, end this world one day because of all the problems going on. They, they might not know who Jesus Christ is. They might not understand the identity of Jesus. And this is what we see with the Jews here who are responding with woeful ignorance. So he highlights the two ways of thinking in this in these verses. He says first of them, and he emphasizes the pronoun here, you, you all, y'all. And he, he's making it emphatic, y'all. It's, it's almost like he's pointing. Y'all are from the lower regions or from below. This is what he's saying. And, he, and he's saying that theirs is a sinful or a worldly thinking. It doesn't come from heaven. It comes from the world. That's the kind of thinking that they are employing. And we read here in verse 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. This is where the sinful condition of Adam, the sinful condition that plagues all of us here in the world, leads to. It leads to death in our sins. And this is why we cannot, as Christians, be employing worldly thinking. Because that is thinking of our former lives. Those who are from below are doomed by their condition. And we cannot save ourselves being from below. And there's no one else in this world who can save you being from below. You can't, you can't get yourself saved by getting baptized, by uh, joining the church. These things are all nice things. These are things I hope you will do if you haven't been either one of these things. Uh, uh, baptized, or if you haven't joined the church, we'll talk about that a little later today after the service. But those things won't save you. You can't save yourself, and I can't save you. 
I, I come from below just like everyone else. We can't save ourselves. No one else in this world can save us. We need someone from above to enter into our condition and set us free. That's what we need. And this is where Jesus says he originates. And he contrasts to them where he is from. And he again, he emphasizes the pronoun like, like he is almost pointing to them. You, y'all, are from below. I, I am from above, he says. From heaven. And they should have already known this about him. We've been going through John for a little while here. You might remember back in John 3.13. You want to take a quick peek over there, John 3.13. He told Nicodemus, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He is saying he actually came from heaven. And he's implying there, which we see later on, that he's going to go back up. He's going to ascend again. John the Baptist, not the author of John, John the Apostle, but John the Baptist in John chapter... Oh. Yeah, no, nope, that's the same chapter. I'm sorry. John 3, 31. I thought I wrote it down wrong, but no, John's last testimony right here at the end of John chapter 3. John 3, 31. He who comes from above is above all. How did John the Baptist know this? He's a prophet, right? He's a prophet. That's how he knew that. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Who's he talking about? He's talking about why Christ should be preeminent over him. Why Christ should be first. Why Christ should increase, but he, John the Baptist, should decrease. See, Jesus existed before he was born as a baby on earth. This is what John the Apostle starts his book off with, John 1, in the beginning was the Word. We, we know that. He was pre-existent. And, and because of this, because he came from above, he didn't have the same limited perspective that everyone else has. And if they would just see who he is, then they would listen and get that broader perspective that they so desperately need. And so he says, again, y'all are from the world. Well, he says he isn't. He doesn't originate from this dark system that we do. He's above it all. There's a word for that. He's transcendent. He's transcendent. And none of us could fully comprehend this truth about him. But we listen to him and we with our worldly minds, which are hopefully transformed by the Holy Spirit, we, we begin to grasp some of the things that he has told us. And he even tells us, he warns us, that, that just as he is, we need to strive to be. We, we shouldn't be of this world. We shouldn't operate the way worldly people operate. John 17, verses 14 through 16 
I have given them your word, Jesus praying to the Father. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. You can already see that division. They are being called out from the world because they are not of this world, not anymore. Even as I am not of the world, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. This is what he's called us to be. We are the church. We're called out. We're called out from this world. And we are to live not with worldly thinking now, but with heavenly thinking. But it all starts with understanding who Jesus is. But we have to not only understand who he is, we have to believe who he is. Do you, do you know who he is? Do you believe who he is? This is, this is why Jesus concludes the way he does in verse 24. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There is no hope for deliverance from our sins except in him, in Jesus Christ. And by the way, this is why we call him Christ, because he's the anointed one, the Messiah. He's the one sent by the Father to accomplish this task. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But with this, Jesus is saying something interesting here. Unless you believe I am he. You know, the, the word he has been added by the translators. It's not in the original. And if you are reading from a King James or New American Standard, you might have noticed that the word he is in italics. That's usually a key that a word has been added by the translators. When a translator does that, the translator is hoping to provide clarity in our language. And so the assumption is when Jesus just says, I am, that uh, in English, he would have said it like this. I am he. I'm he who I've been talking about. But that is a that is an assumption. You know, it's interesting. The Good News Bible, which isn't a Bible I would normally say much good about just it, it, it's a simple translation which means good in places and not so good in other places but it says this in this place which i think is notable if you do not believe that i am who i am ooh, now that's a translation choice it's not just translation choice that's a commentary choice why did they jump to that well, even the New American Standard footnote here says this. Most authorities associate this with Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. Wait a minute. That's the way God revealed himself to Moses. Tell them I, ha I am has sent you. So it is possible to read this in this way, to, to give it a nice, clean translation. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. This is where Jesus is revealing something of himself. And he uses this expression of himself in multiple places, by the way. This isn't the only place. He'll make this clear in this chapter. In verse 28, if you look down to verse 28, again, you'll lift up the Son of Man, and you will know that I am, maybe I am He. 
But we could also just translate it, I am. And you will know that I am. And if they are, if they are somehow suspecting, or they, but they're not quite sure what he means by that, look all the way down now to verse 58. Verse 58. They're saying, you know, you're, you're just a young man. You know, how, how are you talking about Abraham rejoice to see your day? You're not even 50 years old. Yet you've seen Abraham, who obviously lived, you know, hundreds of years before that. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Ooh. You know how they respond to that one? They pick up stones to throw at him. You say, why are they picking up stones to throw at him? Because they think he's committing blasphemy. They, they, at that point, they're like, okay, you are associating yourself with God. You are saying you are divine. And that's correct. That is correct. And it's interesting that Jesus gets back to, after this, he gets back to calling himself not just the Son of Man, but the Son of God in chapter 10, chapter 11, a couple of places, he, he does that. It's obvious that Jesus is saying that his being is far more than what they see in front of him. He comes from above. What do you think that means? He is divine. He is God. They're not ready to hear that, though. Now, this is what we need to believe. Do his worldly listeners understand this? Well, getting back to verse 25, what, how do they respond? They respond with yet another question. Who are you? Who are you? And, and it's their turn to emphasize the pronoun there. It's almost like they're, 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 they're making the question pointed toward them. Who are you? You, who are you? Would be another way of thinking about that. He he's been telling them, and it's almost as though that it's almost as though they've been wearing a blindfold. They've had earplugs in. Some of the kids get that way, right? Uh, it's almost like they're like that. They don't want to hear what he has to say. He's been talking to them for a while now. This is roughly within, if I'm not mistaken, about six months of his crucifixion. He, he, ha he has been with them for a while now. And we can understand his exasperation when, when he asked, what, asked them a question, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? <laughs> what have I been saying to you from the beginning? From the announcement of John the Baptist, Jesus has been ministering in Israel. They, they've had the word of God for comparison. They've heard what Jesus has had to say about himself. And they're still at this basic fundamental level. Well, who are you? You say, how can they not see it? Well, if you say that, you need to, you, you need to utter a quick prayer of thanks to God. Because the only way you see it is that God has opened your eyes to a higher perspective. They can't see it because they only see what's in front of them. They see a man talking to them. That's all they see. 
And that's all they want to see, really. They don't want to be corrected. They want to say that they were right. They were right about them all along. And they don't want anyone telling them any differently. Those who are from below will never know or fully embrace the identity of Jesus Christ. But his is the correct view. His is the one that comes from above all. And, and we might be able to stumble through many parts of our lives. We might even be able to make impressive maps of this world. But it's the transcendent view that shows us just how far off we've been. Even some of the maps of, of America that are just a few hundred years old, we look at them and sometimes we chuckle. Oh, look at that. Look at how big they made Florida. Or look at how, uh, how, how off uh, the, the central United States looks or how, you know, what would become the central United States. Or, you know, the, the shorelines just look funny. It's, it's not the way it should look. They didn't know how far off they were because they didn't have that transcendent view. And we don't realize how far off we are about Jesus because we don't have that view unless we ask him for it. Unless we seek him for it. But we have to recognize that he has, he has that correct view, that he is speaking to us with true words, that he is bringing God's own testimony. And that brings us to that next question. Do you recognize God's testimony? Do you recognize God's testimonies in the words of Christ? Verses 26 and 27. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I have heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about God the Father. Last time we considered the fact that Jesus is not here to judge. And that, that praise God for that. He was here. He was putting up with these people and their unbelief. And he was doing so faithfully as he is teaching them. And I say praise God for that because not only does that mean salvation for us, but that means that if he can be patient with them, he can be patient with me too. <laughs> right? He can be patient with you. Praise God for that. He, he wasn't here to judge. He wasn't here to condemn them. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that he doesn't see how people are off course? Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he sees how far off course everyone is. And he could outright just, just tear them down. But that's not his current purpose. He could begin correcting all the ways in which they are wrong. Let me tell you what's wrong with everything you just said. He could do that. He could do that. But he instead settles on saying what is the most important point for them to know. And what does he say? It might be unexpected to you. He says, he who sent me is true. You say, wait a minute. What does that have to do with what he just said? This is a common refrain in John, and of course, we know God is true. We know that God is faithful. We know these things. But what Jesus is saying is that because he is speaking the words of God the Father, what he is saying is also true. 
what he is saying is also faithful. He is speaking God's testimony. And so he is giving a true and faithful revelation of God. Jesus is fulfilling the role of a prophet in this moment. He is foretelling, or forthtelling, I should say, what God has revealed to him. He is God's mouthpiece in this moment. And anyone who reads the Bible and believes it would see it. Of course, that's the key word. Not just reading the Bible, but believing it. Right? One might say that the Pharisees knew God's word. And the, and the people, because it's not just the leaders here. I, I hope you see that it's switched. It's, it's not just the Pharisees. It's all the Jews, right? That the, the people have learned God's word in synagogue. The Pharisees know God's word. But have they applied it? Do they believe it? If they had, they would have recognized the Father's testimony earlier. Remember back in chapter 5? Jesus was addressing this when he was giving uh, the lines of testimony, the, the, the four witnesses. In John chapter 5, verses 37 and 38, he said this, And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you. For you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. This is Jesus saying the same thing here. He is coming with a true testimony. And so he should hear, or they should hear, excuse me, the testimony of Jesus in his words. But they, they don't, because they don't know the Father and they don't believe it. They don't have the word of God abiding within them. They don't recognize God's testimony. I hope that's not true of you this morning. And consider how deep their ignorance goes. In verse 27, it says that they did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Really? All this time? See, back in verse 19, they had even asked, where is your Father? All this time he's been talking to them. He says, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? They don't, they don't even realize. They don't even have a category for this. They, they cannot conceptualize this idea that Jesus is actually saying he's from above them. That he's from heaven. And that he's come from the heavenly father. They, 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 they cannot even picture that in their head. All they see is what's right in front of them. They are employing worldly thinking. Now, do they believe that God exists? Yes, of course they do. James 2.19, the demons also believe. It's not enough to just believe that God exists. At least the demons shudder. Do you shudder? The... The Pharisees and the people here together, they don't have any reverence for Christ. For the one whom the Father had sent. Why? Because they are from below. They are from the earth. He is from above all. He is transcendent. 
And if we cannot accept who Jesus is and whose testimony he brings, then we too will die in our sins. Now realizing how late the hour is, the only hope is to listen to him and to understand why he came, which brings us to the final point today. Do you recognize Jesus's mission? Do you recognize Jesus's mission? Verses 28 through 30. So Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am or I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And Jesus says that there is coming a time when they're going to lift him up. Now, I know there are those songs, and we, we talk about lifting him up, that we're not talking about praising Jesus, right? This is talking about his crucifixion, them lifting him up on a cross to murder him. In the most torturous way devised, he would be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. Jesus already predicted this, John three fourteen. Why like the serpent in the wilderness? Well, just because, or just like how the children of Israel had gotten bitten by the fiery serpents and they needed a cure lest they die a horrible death from the venom of those snakes. God told them to lift up a bronze serpent through Moses for deliverance. And how do worldly people respond to that? Listen, I just got bit by a snake. I'm not going to go look at some stupid little sculpture that you've just made. That's not going to do anything for me. I've got a real problem over here. And many of them died. But those who looked upon the bronze serpent, as God had commanded, found that the venom left them and they lived. You say, well, how does that happen? That sounds supernatural. That's right. And it points to some other supernatural reality. We're, we've all been bitten with the venom of sin. And there are a lot of people who say, I'm not looking to some old wooden cross somewhere. What is that going to do for me? It's going to do everything for you. If you look upon it and believe. Jesus said, when he is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. And it's at that point that they will re realize who he is. Literally, they will realize, I am. Really? Well, think about the crucifixion for just a moment. He's fulfilling scripture. He's paying for the sin of the people. This is, this is what he does. He covers the sin of the people. And there are signs that accompanied his death, such as the earthquake, the, the sky turning dark. Uh, all, all the things that were happening caused the centurion that was at the cross to become frightened. And remember what he said, Matthew 27, 54? Truly, this was the Son of God. It was a time when even Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, those Pharisees, who were secret disciples by that point, decided to come out openly. 
and prepare Jesus' body for burial. And after the resurrection and the ascension, 3,000 people in Jerusalem came to faith and believed that Jesus is the I Am, the one who would save them from their sins. Jesus predicts all of this ahead of time. And he says that they will come to realize at this point not only who he is, but that he is here doing nothing on his own initiative. That he is here speaking the things that the Father has taught him. He doesn't speak of his own words, he, 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 or speak of what words he uses. It also speaks of his works that he performs. And this goes on into verse 29 where he says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He has perfect communion with the Father. He says, and he who sent me is with me and he has not left me alone. Jesus and the Father are one in essence and in purpose. He is a son who is pleasing to the Father. Now, I want to be a son who's pleasing to the Heavenly Father. How am I going to get there? Through effort? Maybe if I try real hard, I can become pleasing to the Father? Well, no, because... My food is not always to do that, which is pleasing to God. I, I sometimes fail. I sometimes stumble. And even if I were somehow miraculously able to pull it off perfectly for the rest of my life, there's still my former part of my life that stands against me. How am I going to be a son who's pleasing to the Father? I need to be in the son that is pleasing to the Father. I need to be in Jesus Christ. And so do you. See, Jesus didn't just die on the cross for our sins. He also lived the perfect life that you were supposed to, but couldn't. He came and fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law on your behalf. Now, I know sometimes you feel like you have to prove something to God. You feel like you have to, you know pay God off or something like that, but you have to recognize in those moments, Jesus has paid it all. He's done everything, not just on the cross, but in his whole life leading up to the cross. And we who have sinned, who have missed God's holy standard, Jesus' blood covers us, and Jesus' life also is a substitute for us. He lived the life that we were supposed to, and he died the death that we had earned. He really did pay it all. And it's in this that we start to see why Jesus really came. He didn't really come just to teach us to love one another, although he did do that, and we need to do that, especially if we are no longer of the world. But that's not the only reason he came. He, he didn't just come to become victorious over the forces of darkness, although he did that. But that's not the only reason. He came to save us and to save us to the uttermost. This is why he came. And this is why we would do well to take our eyes off of the world and everything that's around us and 
to fix them above, fix them on Christ. Now, Jesus said all this, do they believe in him? Well, verse 30 says that they did, but we've also seen people with superficial faith before in this gospel. So we'll have to study on and figure out if they truly believe. And Lord willing, next week we'll do that. But the question that's bigger for us at this very moment is whether you believe today, whether you believe. I know that there are some of you who know some of this. There are some people who do. It's easy to flip through the radio stations, for instance, or flip through videos on the Internet and and find people who are identifying true problems in this world and saying the time's got to be near. There are some people who likewise know that Jesus was more than a man. And that's good. There are many who profess belief in God. And there are folks that even recognize that Jesus died for the sins of the world. Those are all good things. But not everyone understands all of this. Or even having that knowledge applies it within their own hearts. They may have figured a lot of things out. Maybe even some things that are very, very impressive in their own right. They've made their maps. But from heaven's perspective, those maps are inaccurate. They need that heavenly perspective. And so do you. Now, the good news is this. If you lack that perspective and simply look up to Christ and find in him that perspective that you need, you will see that, yes, Jesus has not only told us the time is short and that we will die in our sins if if we don't believe, but he's also provided us a way of salvation if we do believe. He can save you. He can also open your eyes to the exalted truth. And so believe in him. And if you need help, if you want to talk to someone about that, of course, you can talk to us uh, after after this service or or later on in the week, we'd be happy to meet with you. But turn to Christ. And if you're a believer in here, I hope you're not embracing the old worldly thinking of just looking at things that are in front of you, not being sensitive to the Holy Spirit and, and following the word of God. I hope that you also are continuing to look up and look to Christ. Because his is the only perspective that truly matters. It's the only perspective that's true.